This was a great example of how uh, kids know the most important words. And even younger kids than just sang for us, uh, I would share, know the, the best and most significant things to say in any language. For example, among the first words that come out of a kid's mouth are these. Love you. Our kids learn very easy if someone early, if someone sneezes to say, bless you. Our kids, hopefully, have a conscience very early and learn very soon to say, sorry. Among their very first syllables are these, mama, dada. If you live in a different part of the world, abba. You can live almost all of life with these phrases, love you, sorry, da-da. I mean, for the spiritual life, this is about as deep as it gets. In the next month, we are going to explore two other um, early childhood words as being central to the spiritual life, and they are these words, please and thank you. In the spirit of our American holiday that's coming up in a month, uh, so much of our relationship with God hinges on these two simple prayers or spiritual postures. Please and thank you. A very successful businessman from our church uh, emailed me these words in the last month. We were, for some reason, talking about thank you notes and writing thank you notes to people. And he said this, the most important lesson I learned in my real life sandbox and as a kid, and again in my business sandbox as an adult were the power of please and thank you. It's amazing how a genuine expression of those simple words impacts all my transactions. This is a very successful guy, and he is saying, it's amazing when you put your heart and genuinely express please and thank you. So in these weeks, you're going to hear both these words today. Next week is going to be a deep dive into please, and then the week after, into thank you. So these words are spiritually present and powerfully present in Luke chapter 17. Here's how the story goes. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. Now they stood off at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when Jesus saw them, he said, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Um, he is on his way. This is his last trip. This is his last journey. Jesus has it firmly in mind where he is going and what is going to happen to him. He's going to be betrayed. He is going to suffer. He is ultimately going to die. And it is amazing how many times in the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is making that journey toward his death, that Jesus stops and listens and takes time for everybody else. I mean, if something bad is happening to me, all I can think about is myself and my circumstances. When Jesus faced the worst, he had all the time in the world for everybody else. 
Jesus takes time in this story for a group of people who were hurting in every possible way. It's difficult for us to imagine in 2017 what it was like to have leprosy. I mean, leprosy still exists as a disease, but is entirely curable in our modern society with modern drugs and with antibiotics. The cure for leprosy did not exist until the mid-1940s. So it, it hasn't been around all that long, and the world has not known what to do with leprosy for all that long. In pretty much every culture that I have read about, if you had leprosy, the fear of the contagion of that disease and its consequences was so great that if you contracted leprosy, you were removed from your family. You were removed from your house. You were removed outside of the city gates of your town. The stigma and the fear of this disease was so great. 2,000 years ago in the Jewish world, this was true. You went outside of town, and if you came near anyone, you had to call out, unclean. We are unclean to ward everybody else off. There are still pretty modern American versions of this. There were leper colonies in the Hawaiian Islands not all that long ago. In Hawaii, you were sent to the island of Molokai. That's where all the lepers went. If you were a young girl that had it, you were taken out of your house and went with the leper colony. The Hawaiians had a special word for what the lepers had to say. It was away, not as in away, get away, but away, which is the Hawaiian expression for alas, woe is me. So there are 10 folks who are in this sequestered state of being sick, of being outcast. Interestingly, as Jesus is walking on the border of the red states and the blue states, uh, Samaria and Galilee, it is a mixed company of lepers. I mean, there's nothing like bringing people together like sickness and suffering. You'd wish we were noble and big-hearted enough to get together for other reasons, but there's nothing like suffering together that will bring people of all walks of life together. And they call out, as they would have had to, from a distance, unclean. But because they recognize that this is no ordinary group of people, but that Jesus of Nazareth is walking with his friends, they call out also this, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Now, Jesus is called teacher all the time, rabbi all the time. He is called master only a handful of times in the entire New Testament. And any time he is called master, something incredible happens. Like there's a great catch of fish or 5,000 people are fed. And in this case, these folks who are so desperately hurting see in Jesus a master. And they address him as such. I want to meditate on this word with you for just a moment. Before the world of modern medication and antibiotics, there was no cure for leprosy. There was no getting better from it. And yet they had the courage to call out, Jesus, Master, mercy, do something about this. Might there be some portion of your life, your times, your circumstances right now 
where it would do you great good to speak the name of Jesus as master right now. I mean, some part of your life where maybe you've written it off, it's always going to be this way. Something that you're particularly hopeless about. Something where there seems no cure, there seems no possibility of change. It is just going to go on like this forever. With good faith, we can walk in the footsteps of these lepers and say, Jesus, Master, you are the master even of this part of me. And I declare it here in your house, Lord God, you are the master of this. This is the posture of please. It's the desperate prayer of please when you're beyond your own strength, beyond the end of your own rope, where you just, from the gut, cry out, Jesus, master. Jesus' response when he hears that desperate prayer is this. He doesn't snap his fingers and just say, all y'all be well now. He asks them for an act of faith. He says to them, go and see the priests. Now, if a leper went to see the priest, they won't even make it inside the town gate to see the priest if they still had leprosy. You know what I'm saying? So what Jesus was asking them to do was implying, if you take this step of faith and go see the priests, they will see you, and by the time you get there, you will be clean. So they go. What do they have to lose? There is no cure for this disease. So they go, and then the scripture says, as they went on their way, as they took this step of faith that Jesus asked of them, as they leaned into the word of God, they were made clean. The story continues this way. One of them, remember this was a group of ten, a uh, a mixed group of ten. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back giving glory to God in a loud voice. Remember how they called please mercy in a loud voice? He gives glory to God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And here's the kicker. He was a Samaritan. If Jesus and his disciples are from a red state, I mean, this is a, this is a blue state guy. He is the least likely of the group to come back. And he's the one who comes back. And he gives glory to God in a loud voice. A loud voice of desperation from the ten when they cry out, please, please, please. And a loud voice of thanksgiving from this Samaritan when he comes back to say thank you. Because Jesus is the master, sometimes he decides to effect a change immediately. As in this case. Sometimes, Jesus is still the master, sometimes when Jesus wants to effect a change, he asks us to wait. Or he asks us to take steps of faith that take years of cooperation before the desperate pleas and cries of our hearts get answered. 
But sometimes, sometimes because Jesus is the master, something happens sooner rather than later. God can change things if he wishes, and if it's for our benefit and the good of the world, God can change things in the blink of an eye. God, of course, is outside of space and time. It makes no difference to God to make a transformation immediate and short-term or decades-long and process-oriented. The only difference is what would benefit you the most, what would benefit his people the most, what would benefit his world and the church the most. It's all the same to God, right? There's a man in our congregation named Jack McNamara. He is a man who knows about healings and transformations, both short-term and long-term. I love Jack very much. He's our local crazy Irishman. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> when Jack was in his 30s, just a couple years ago, uh, God healed him from alcoholism. I mean, there was a swift part to that, and there's been a long, drawn-out part of that. Uh, in the last year and a half, Jack has suffered greatly uh, with a disease, an infection in his abdomen, and God has slowly brought him back. I don't know if you're full strength, but you got a lot of strength back. And uh, in the last few months, Jack has been to Honduras twice as an ambassador um, of Jesus, of course, but as an ambassador of our church as well. And I've asked him to share a little bit about what he has seen and observed about Jesus' ongoing transformative power. So thank you, brother. Good morning, good morning. It's safe for me to say that I've seen God do uh, some incredible things in my life. Uh, some of them miraculous. Miraculous being defined as cannot be explained in, uh, in earthly or normal uh, terms. I've also seen God drag things out for a while. Uh, some of you, I've had this Sunday school some past years ago, and you remember some of the stories that I used to tell you about how God had dealt with me in my life with some instant miracles. Some of you remember, might remember the story of the screwdriver in my hand that I took the screwdriver out, and miraculously, there was nothing there. And there were several other stories and, that I've told. But recently, about a year and a half ago, um, instead of being instantaneous, God did another type of uh, thing in my life. I, I had this uh, hole in my stomach, you know, and it was a virus that burned a hole in my stomach. Yeah, who, who knew? And it was allowing all of this yucky material to get into my system. And, you know, it was a pretty serious thing. It caused me to go to the emergency ward over at Elmhurst and get some emergency surgery, which uh, was pretty good because the doctor said he had about a five-hour window before it would have been too late. So that, that was good, and I got the surgery done, but uh, that was not the end of the story. It was months before I got back to normal. Infection set in, uh, healing didn't go right. Uh, nine months before I was even able to just go outside of the house. And all that time, God, you know, where's these miracles? You know, I got things to do. You know, I just can't lay around here trying to get better. Where are you? Took a while. Frustrating. 
didn't doubt God. He just couldn't understand why, because they had seen so many times where, bam, right then and there. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you the most recent incident that happened in my life where I saw God do that kind of thing. We were in Honduras. A bunch of us went down there in August, did a lot of work on a, on a building project, came back, but we had left some work undone because things needed to be uh, put in place for us to continue, especially the electrical work. So I and Ron Beckbar went back to Honduras in October. And uh, it was primarily to do electrical work, which was we did. But in the process, one day, I had the opportunity to witness the gospel to a bunch of teenagers. And uh, praise God, a number of them gave their lives to the Lord, right then and there. Gave the invitation. They said, yes, I want Jesus in my life. And they gave their life to Jesus. That's a, that's a symbol, you know, you know, one of those things. Definitely, you hear somebody give their life to the Lord, you know, that's a wow, thank you, God. Two days later, I had another opportunity on a mountaintop to give the gospel to some adults. We had to climb up this mountain, and on the top of this mountain, you could see it from the campgrounds that we were working, was this huge 12, 15-foot cross, all painted white, beautiful scene. And I wanted to go up there, and a bunch of people said, yeah, let's go up there. And uh, my purpose was to really minister the gospel when I got up there, because we were working with some guys, local guys, and these were men who, you know, I, in my spirit, they were not Christians. You could, you could tell they were not Christians, just the way they would laugh and just their mannerisms. And, I mean, they weren't terrible. They weren't swearing. I mean, I couldn't tell anyway. They were all in Spanish. But you could just, I knew that they were not Christians. You know, I just knew it. So that we had invited them to come up with us, with a group of people, to climb this mountain and see this beautiful view. But my purpose was, and I had set this up with a friend that I had met there. He was a teacher, and he was an incredible linguist. His name was Calvin. And he could go from English to Spanish just by turning his head. He was just that good. So I said, well, when we get a chance, I'm going to give these guys the gospel. I said, would you interpret for me? Yes! Oh, he jumped at the chance to do this. Great, great young man. So I thought we would be doing it on the way up the mountain, but we're swinging on vines, hanging on little ledges, trying to get up there. If I had known the way we had to climb that mountain, I don't know whether I would have volunteered to do this, but we got up there. And when I got up there, we all got up there, and we are wiped out. We are glad to be 10 feet more, and we would all said, that's it, we're not going any further. But we got about an hour and a half to climb up this mountain. So uh, through an interpreter, I say, why don't everybody sit down in front of the cross? And then, and uh, so they all sit down this little ledge that's by the cross, and uh, I started to minister the gospel. Now I'm watching these guys, and I'm expecting things like, <sighs> how long? And all of a sudden, it's... And these, these men are getting intense. Now these, these are worldly guys. These are guys that work in concrete and tile, and you know, they're just worldly guys, best way I'm going to put it. But they are really listening. So, I, I, there are so many things I could tell you about this here, but I'm going, to, I'm going to cut to the chase. So I give them the gospel. I ask them if anybody here wants to receive Christ as a personal Lord and Savior. They raise their hands, pray the sinner's prayer. That's it. So we're on the way down the mountain. Way down was not quite as bad as on the way up, but it's starting to rain. And this mountain is slippery, you know. And we're having trouble keeping our footing to get down this mountain. So 
Everybody's trying to scramble to get down to the bottom before it really starts raining very hard. We get down to the bottom, it's raining hard, everybody goes their own way, we go back to our hotel. I don't see these guys until Monday morning. Monday morning, we get back on a job site, me and Ron Beckler. And these guys, they are changed. Buenos dias. Give us a hug, shake our hand. You could tell they, they weren't boisterous, they weren't snickering. They weren't, you know, looking to get out of work. They were changed. Wow. But having done evangelism a lot of places in the world, I know this to be a fact. A lot of people will make that decision, but it's really an emotional one. And several weeks to several days later, you probably will hardly notice that they had made that decision. And I was wondering about these guys. Was it just something, an experience they had had, or was it real? So the following day, Tuesday, I and Ron were going to leave the camp. We're going back three and a half hour drive to another city where we would take the plane. And we're saying goodbye to these guys in English, Spanish, mumble-jumble back and forth. And I'm not too sure that they realize that we're not coming back, that we might be just saying goodbye for the day. And, uh, but, but... By the time we got towards the car where we were getting ready to leave and we would not be coming back, they realized that we weren't coming back. And they came climbing down off of that building site and they started giving us a hug and just, it was wonderful, wonderful. And I looked at these guys and all I could think of was, you know, 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, which says, if any man belongs to Christ, behold, the old things passed away, all things become new. I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I, you, I see the work that you have done in these men's lives. So let me see it instantaneously. I didn't have to worry about whether there was a follow-up or anything. He said, Jack, I did it. These are mine. I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I think Jack failed to mention that he sent the world record for the oldest man to make it up that mountain. I think 78 right there. Wouldn't have given good odds on that in the hospital a year ago, bro. Uh, But where Jesus the master is present, amazing things can happen. Where Jesus the master is present, you can feel free to cry out, Please, help. And where Jesus, the master, is present, you should feel expressly free to say, thank you, glory to God, whenever something decent happens. Here's how the story concludes in Luke chapter 17. Jesus asks, were not all 10 of these folks cleansed from their leprosy? What happened to the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God? With a twinkle in his eye, I believe he said this part, except this foreigner. And then Jesus said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is the more modern translation. The NIV used to read this way. Jesus said, rise and go. Your faith has saved you. This is a better and bolder translation. Jesus asked this question to everybody who witnessed this scene. Why did only one person come back? What happened to the other nine? 
Or if I can put it this way, even if God does something awesome, 90% of people will just take it for granted even an hour later. 10% of folks, even if they've witnessed something awesome, will come back, lose their inhibitions, and bounce the glory back up to God from the bottom of their heart and share it. Which group do you want to be in? If you looked at the track record of your life, the things that God has done, the ways uh, that your life has experienced touches of grace or beauty, unmerited kindnesses, are you, do you want to be in that 90% group? Or do you want to be in the 10%? The reason I asked Jack to talk today is because I know him to be in the 10%. Right? He's a crazy man. Jesus wants you to be in the 10%. There's a progression in this story. First, Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priests. And then the scripture says, as they went, they were cleansed. Like, all of a sudden, their skin, like, what? It doesn't yet say if it's a short-term healing or a long-term healing. You know what I mean? They could go to the priest. Our symptoms are gone. Welcome back to town. Two weeks later, the leprosy starts coming back. They don't know yet, but they were cleansed. Later, the one out of ten realizes, not only am I clean right now, but one of them, when he saw, he was healed. Like, that's a long-term word. He recognizes the power of God has fallen on me, and I am different from here on out. And then to complete the deal, when he comes back and thanks God, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Now, let's be clear. Whose power accomplished the healing here? Whose power? Jesus. Christ alone if I can put it that way. Was there anything that any of these 10 guys did to earn this healing? Were they the best 10 guys in all of Israel and Samaria? Probably not. It was grace alone that touched them. What did Jesus say saved them? How was this guy able to receive the gift? It was his faith alone. See where I'm going with this? Whose word accomplished the healing? The word of God alone, Jesus' word, was the source of power. And what was the result? The guy came back and with a loud voice, he gave glory to God alone. If you've been here in worship the last month, have you heard these words? Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, the word of God alone, glory to God alone. Anytime you open up the pages of scripture and read some good news, all five of those streams are present. Please and thank you in the spiritual life. Work like an electrical circuit. Jack McNamara is a master electrician, okay? Correct me if I get any of this wrong. In order to turn on a light bulb or any appliance, there has to be a flow of electrons. Okay, I'm going to talk about literal electricity and spiritual electricity for just a moment. They work the same way. 
In order to turn on a light bulb, there has to be a flow of electrons from one pole of a power source. Okay, so the electrons get flowing, they hit a resistance or a load, let's call it a light bulb in this case, that's the resistance. When the electrons hit that light bulb, the light bulb does not yet go on. It only goes on after the electrons, the electricity passes through that resistance and returns to the opposite pole of the source. You know what I'm saying? That's when the bulb goes on, when the circuit, when the loop is complete. In the spiritual life, this is where spiritual electricity happens. When on one pole we say, oh, Jesus, Master, please. When we pray in desperation. And then it is the power of God, but the light doesn't go on. The spiritual energy doesn't happen. The electricity doesn't complete its work until we say on the opposite pole, thank you, thank you, thank you, glory to God. You getting what I'm selling here? (laughs) Both are equally necessary parts for the power of God to be evident as the light to the world. I mean, we do very little in this whole process. God supplies the electricity. He gives us the battery. He gives the current. He does everything. He only asks that we cooperate by saying, oh, please, 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 and when appropriate, say, thank you, thank you, thank you. That, friends, is when amazing, light-giving, world-transforming, you-transforming things happen. Do you want to be in the 10% of people who is willing to complete that circuit? Anybody? I mean, the world's going to tell you just to stay on the 90%. I mean, you went to church. Isn't that enough? God is asking for your desperate pleases and your extravagant thank yous and glory to God's. The New Testament word for thanksgiving is this, Eucharist. Some of you have heard this word before. In the Roman Catholic tradition, it is the word that means this, the sacrament, the Eucharist, the great thanksgiving. This is how we're going to end today, friends, by coming just like that one out of ten lepers, Lord willing, with thankful hearts to the table of thanksgiving. Sometimes we get confused at this table and we think it's just about remembering Jesus' death. It's just remembering how much he suffered on the cross. That's totally true. But we come not just as folks who have leprosy. We come as folks who have already been told, go on your way and you will be healed. As you walk the journey of faith, you will be healed. So we come to this table with great thanks. This is why we're going to come forward today, just like the one out of ten came back. And I would humbly suggest when you are offered this piece of bread that represents the body of Christ, that you say in response, glory to God. And when you are offered this bowl that represents the sinless blood of Christ, that you say in response, glory to God. Or if you want to say thanks be to God or however you want to put it. God is asking us simply to offer in a loud voice our prayers of please 
and also in a loud voice to offer glory and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the good news of this gospel story. We thank you.